Think about a time in your life that you disappointed someone that you loved. Maybe you wrecked a car or got a bad grade on a report card. Maybe you got caught in a lie or someone found out that you were spreading false statements about them. Maybe you missed an assignment on a sports team that you were expected to make. We've all disappointed other people at various times in our lives. But there's a deeper disappointment that we can bring to others because of something that we've done. Something so terrible and unacceptable that if we did it, the people that we love would not welcome us into their home. For example, suppose someone you knew committed a crime so heinous that even an unbelieving world would find it repulsive. If you knew that person, every time you heard their name, you would revolt in your mind against even the thought of them. Maybe imagine crimes committed by people like John Wilkes Booth or Charles Manson, Gary Ridgway, the filth of Hugh Hefner, or the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. Think about how you might react if one of those guys walked into your home or you saw them on the street. It's hard to imagine that we would be able to welcome those guys back to the family dinner and act as if nothing was wrong. Instead, we would likely keep our distance. This kind of sin goes beyond disappointing someone. This is shameful. Shame can be described as a deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something that you did or something that was done to you or something that's associated with you. It's a deep awareness that you know that you are rejected. So shame goes beyond embarrassment. You might be embarrassed when you wore the wrong clothes to a social event or you showed up to class without homework, but but shame goes beyond that. It comes when we do something so egregious that we would actually be removed from that social event. We would be removed from our classroom. And we can feel this deep sense of being rejected by the community, whether we committed a certain kind of sin or if we were a victim of someone else's repulsive sin. If someone close to us was discovered to have raped someone, then they would be ashamed around us. They wouldn't belong. We wouldn't know how to act around them. They wouldn't know how to act around us. But suppose, so that, that's, they've actually committed some kind of crime that's been shameful. They're not accepted in the community. But suppose someone close to us was the victim of rape. They also would have a hard time belonging around us. Not because we don't want them here. Not because we're trying to remove them from our community, but because they have this deep sense of not being accepted, of being different. This is shame. And both senses of shame, both guilty shame and innocent shame, are described for us in 2 Samuel 13. So let me invite you to turn there, 2 Samuel 13. About 4,000 years ago, Israel was born. 
She started off with God on her side. She received some great promises from God, including a relationship with him and a promised land. She came to Egypt with very little land or possessions, but grew to about two million people while in captivity. And she left Egypt with great possessions, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and received the land of promise as we learn about in the book of Joshua. Israel had a law that would govern her. We read about in Exodus. She had instructions for ordered worship. We read about in Leviticus. But as we learn from the judges, she needed a king. And that brings us to the books of Samuel, where we'll give our attention this morning. Israel needed a king to shepherd them, to lead them, to care for them. But the king was not simply to lead them however he wanted. He didn't get to make the choice of how he would lead them. He was to lead them according to the revealed word of God. Consider Deuteronomy 17, 18. Now it shall come about when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for him a, himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. So the first thing that a king was supposed to do when he came into, came to reign in Israel and later Judah was to make a copy of the scriptures for himself. And then to read it every day. I assume a portion of it every day. And then heed it. Because this is the way that he would lead God's people. The king's responsibility was to keep the covenant that the nation had with God, to obey the word. And David rises to power with great humility and recognition by the nation that he is greater than Saul. Saul kills his thousands, but David his ten thousands. David kills the mighty giant Goliath. He wins several battles on behalf of Saul. He's anointed king, but doesn't receive the throne for years later. In the meantime, he has King Saul opposing him. And when he has a chance to kill Saul, he does not do it. King David would receive a promise from God that his kingdom would last forever. And yet we know from history that David would not be the king that would sit on that throne forever because he would die. And further, we know that David was not the rightful king, the perfect king, because he was a sinner. He was self-seeking at times. He committed some pretty disastrous sins. In 2 Samuel 11, David commits adultery with Bathsheba and has her husband killed. But he spectacularly confesses and repents of his sin. And in 2 Samuel 13, we learn a little bit about the fallout from David's sin. And one of the things that we learn from this passage is that children are very much a reflection of their parents. When I was a kid, everyone would tell me that I looked like my dad. Of the eight siblings, I had the closest resemblance, apparently. And I heard that so much that when I was in elementary school, I asked my dad, why didn't you just name me Dan then? If I was going to look so much like you, why didn't you just name me after you? And so he didn't have a good answer for that. And so he decided to tell 
others in the church that we were going to, including my aunt. Why don't we just call him Dan for a day? And so they pestered me with that in almost over-the-top type of way, just so I would hate it, and I did hate it. And so I went back to my name. So Jacob today. We are a reflection of our parents. But we don't merely resemble our parents in the way that we look. We also reflect the parents, our parents in the way that we act as well, don't we? We adopt our parents' love for culture. We adopt their love for sports teams. We, lo- we adopt their love for food. We take on their mannerisms and characteristics. Without realizing it, we adopt their phrases and their tone and their passions. And we catch ourselves sounding just like our father or mother. And in one sense, we look at our children and think that they are their own person and they're fully responsible for their own sin. But I don't think the Scriptures allow us to look at it that simply. They are responsible for their own sin. But in many cases, our failures as parents tend to lead, leave for our children an example that may not be the direct cause of their sin because the cause is their own sinful heart, but certainly it's a factor in it. Perhaps a catalyst for them giving into the flesh because we've exemplified this and have made it. Dad got away with it. Dad does this all the time, so why can't I? And there's this kind of unspoken adopting of our parents' even sinful habits at times, isn't there? This story in chapter 13 is about David's sons, but it's also about David. The larger story is the life of David. That's what the the second Samuel is about. It's about the rise of David all the way to his death. But this is not just about his son. It's, It's more, it's a little bit of both, I would say. That his sons are engaging in sins that They saw their father or heard about their father doing. Perhaps partially because of David's failure to lead. Let me read the first six verses here. We'll look at the entire chapter this morning, but it'd be good for us to to start here with the first six verses. 2 Samuel 13. Now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin. And it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Jonadab then said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat, and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. So in order to understand what's going on here, we need to understand a little bit about the family of David. David had more than one wife. His oldest son, through Ahinoam, 
was named Amnon. That's the, the main character in this story. But he also had two other children through Maacah named Absalom and Tamar. So Absalom and Tamar are full-blooded siblings, while Absalom and Amnon are half-brothers to each other. They have the same father, different mothers. Which makes sense of why Absalom comes to Tamar's aid later on in the story, as we'll see. Some time has passed since David's sin in chapters 11 and his confession in chapter 12, and there perhaps may be several years here between chapters 12 and 13. And now some of the things that David engaged in, you're starting to see some of the characteristics, the, the patterns start to show up in his own children. Like with David, Amnon's sin begins with a look. He saw her, and then he desired her in his heart, a wrong, lustful desire. The text of verse 1 says that he loved her. We know in the context this is not true biblical love, of course, but a worldly kind of love, an infatuation, a sensual craving. And this lust bloomed into an intense passion that caused him to to be ill, verse 2. So his friend Jonadab comes along, and he knows Amnon well enough to know that there's something wrong. So he asks. And so in a shrewd way, crafty kind of way, he gives Amnon the opportunity to have an immoral relationship with his sister. And so he makes up the story. Ask her to prepare a meal for you. Maybe, maybe you can seduce her. After lust is born in verses 1 through 6, we see that lust gives, gives birth to sin in verses 7 through 14. Then David sent to the house of Tamar, saying, Go now to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. And she took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. She took the pan and dished them out before him, and he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have everyone go out for me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I might eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. And when she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where should I, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you'll be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not listen to her since he was stronger than she. He violated her and lay with her. Amnon carried out his plan. He asks for his dad, dad's permission to get Tamar to care for him. He sends everybody out of the room and has her bring the food right into the bedroom. Before actually engaging in the rape, he, he actually tries to entice her. But Tamar wisely declines, and she gives him four reasons for why she declines. The first is found in verse 12, that Amnon would be ashamed. Amnon would be reproached, disgraced himself. 
No, my brother, she says in verse 12, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. You're not going to be welcome in the community. You're going to be rejected by all people when they find out what you've done. In order to protect your own name, reputation, character, don't do this thing. But notice in verse 13, she's also concerned about her own standing in the community. She's concerned about her own shame that will come on her from being an innocent victim. Verse 13, As for me, where could I go to get rid of my reproach? Another way to describe that is, where could I get rid of my disgrace? Where could I get rid of my shame? When people find out about this, they're not going to accept me. She goes on with a third reason. You'll be a town full at the end of verse 13 the middle of verse 13, and then at the end, it would be better if we did this legally. I think there what she's doing is wisely saying, why don't we include dad in on this? And she's doing that because she knows her dad would shut it down and not allow it. Of course, he rejects her appeal. And so he forces himself on her in verse 14. Lust is conceived, lust gives birth to sin, and then sin leads to disgrace or shame in verses 15 through 19. Then Amnon hated her with a great hatred, for the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go away. But she said to him, no, because this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you have done to me. And he would not listen to her. Then he called his young man who attended him and said, Now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. She had a long-sleeved garment, for in this manner the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes, and then his attendant took her out and locked the door behind her. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long-sleeved garment, which was on her, and she put her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. The petulance and spoiled nature of Amnon is seen most clearly in verse 15. He wants, he knows what he wants, and he goes after it. And once he gets it, he turns on her and is ready to discard her like a used object. Tamar wisely, again, declines to leave. She doesn't want to bear all the reproach herself. He needs to share in some of that because he's the one who committed the sin. Someone who was raped in Israel in the ancient Near East was left to be unmarried and uncared for. And so the, the, the law in Deuteronomy 22 required that the person who committed the rape was supposed to pay the dowry to her father and make her his wife. Tamar realizes this and declines to leave, but of course he forces her out. He sends her away in shame, in disgrace. She tears her robe, which signified herself as a virgin, puts ashes on her head, showing that she's in a state of grief and mourning. Exactly what Tamar expected would happen and promised, essentially, would happen to Amnon is what happened. She was going to bear disgrace. She was going to be disgraced. And if that's not enough sin and shame for a single chapter, there's more. Absalom 
responds to the situation. And here we see hate is conceived in verses 20 through 22. Absalom, her brother, remember, full-blooded brother of Tamar, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother's brother Absalom's house. And then verse 22, But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Absalom's first move is to care for his sister, the victim, the innocent one. And while and the second move was to conceal his hatred for his brother. That hate, after it's conceived, gives birth to sin in verses 23 through 29. Now it came about after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Absalom came to the king and said, Behold now, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we should not all go, for we will be burdensome to you. Although he urged him, he would not go, but blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But when Absalom urged him, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom commanded his servants, saying, See now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear, have I not, have I not myself commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. The servants of Absalom did to Amnon, just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. Hatred is not always acted upon right away. Absalom conceals it for two full years. Maybe it grew more and more each day, or it could be simply that he wanted to make enough time pass in order for him to take his potential accusers off the scent and thwart his plan to kill his brother. Whatever the case, he was wise enough to know that if he acted right away, his plot would be suspected. He didn't want to backfire on him. And so he makes this plan. Two years later, have Amnon come to my house with all my other family. And so he uses this means of kind of this cloak. He cloaks it in the story of having a sheep-shearing party. Apparently that was a thing. But Amnon wouldn't come to something like that. And so he invites David, knowing that he will likely decline. But just because David declines, Absalom expects David to send a family representative, and who better than the oldest son, the heir of the throne, Amnon, the crown prince. So David agrees. He says, but he's not coming alone. He he needs to come with his brothers. So in verse 28, Absalom gets Amnon drunk and then gives the signal to the servants to strike him dead. He says, be courageous, be valiant. Perhaps the reason they had to be courageous because maybe they had enough moral, uh, more, they had enough of a moral pulse to know that what they were doing was wrong, and also that they were committing a high crime in Israel to kill the pr- crown prince. So he says, "Don't worry about it. Be courageous. Do this." And so they do. 
some of the messengers that were there probably thought the rest of the brothers were going to be killed as well. And so they take word back to David that all of his sons are dead. Sin is conceived and then uh, hate is conceived and then it gives birth to sin. And then sin leads to disgrace for Absalom as well in verses 30 through 39. Absalom too is ashamed. Now it was while they were on their way that the report came to David saying, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose, tore his clothes and lay on the ground and all his servants were standing by with clothes torn. Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, responded, Do not let my lord suppose they have put to death all the young men, the king's son, for Amnon alone is dead. Because by the intent of Absalom, this has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore do not let my lord the king take the report to heart, namely all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Now Absalom had fled. And the young man who was the watchman raised his eyes and looked. And behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, according to your servant's word, so it happened. As soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted their voices and wept, and also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. Now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. The heart of King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. In all the shock and commotion, the messengers who, were left, who left in a hurry assumed Absalom had killed them all. But Jonadab makes the record straight. It's not clear how Jonadab knew. Maybe he stuck around. Maybe he knew that hatred of Absalom and how it was building for two years. And when David's sons returned, they, they all grieved together over the loss of their brother. In the meantime, Absalom knows that David could not ignore such a sin as this, and so he heads to his grandfather's house. Talmai was the, the father of Absalom's mother, Maacah, David's father-in-law. So he heads up to Syria and stays there for three years. Interestingly, now Amnon is no longer the crown prince because he's dead, and the second oldest, Kiliab, apparently died in childhood because we only hear of him in one other place. So now Absalom apparently is the crown prince. He's the next one in line to the throne. Instead of acknowledging and repenting of his sins, he runs. He runs from David. David mourns for him every day, mourns for Amnon. He, mo he mourns for, for Absalom being away. David knew what it was like to live in hiding. He ran from Saul for years. He knew it was what it was like to live far from home. And so in some way, David sympathized with Ab Absalom. And Absalom did what David was unwilling to do, even though David had the right and the responsibility to respond to Amnon's sin. David was the father and the king, and he let this sin of rape go. And Absalom took justice into his own hands. Look at verse 21, see this. 
Now when King David, so this is right after the rape has happened. Now when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. When we look at the sins of Amnon and Absalom, we might think, again, all of the responsibility falls on their shoulders. They made choices. And again, I think they are responsible. They're going to stand before God and give an account for how they lived. But it's also not as simple as that. David's abdication is shining here in bright lights. He did nothing when he heard of his daughter being raped by his son. Consider Absalom's sin, the murder of his brother. David doesn't do anything. He doesn't chase him down. He doesn't hold him to account. He doesn't bring him before himself as judge and king. And he abdicates his responsibility with Amnon as well. He fails to carry out judgment on Amnon as he deserves. He could have made Amnon care for Tamar for the rest of his life. He could have carried out capital punishment for committing incest. Why is this? What's going on with David? Why so passive? Why just leave alone what's clearly out there as violations of God's clear law. We don't exactly get an answer, but could it be that David knows what it likes to look disingenuous since he, he, he knows how disingenuous this would look because he committed adultery. When he saw a woman, he went and took her. And when he wanted to cover up something, when he wanted to have his way, when he wanted to portray himself in a certain way, he went and killed someone. So what could David say to Amnon about his sin? Would not Amnon challenge David about his sin with Bathsheba? Would not Absalom challenge David with his killing of Uriah? So here, there's shame all over the place. Disgrace. People who have committed egregious sins and people who have, and a person who's experienced the consequences of someone else's egregious sin. Amnon is ashamed. He's a reproach to Israel. Tamar's ashamed. She's not welcome. Absalom's ashamed. And so he runs. And perhaps David's ashamed because he's unwilling to deal with the sin in his own family. Let me conclude by making one clarification and then four observations. So first, clarification. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Ed Welch writes that guilt lives in the courtroom and says, you have done something wrong and you deserve to be punished. So we either have guilt or we don't. We have it when we've sinned, when we've broken a law, and we have it removed when we are forgiven. We don't carry guilt around for the rest of our lives. It's only there when we have unconfessed sins. It it weighs on us. 
But, but shame is different. Guilt lives in the courtroom and says, you've done something wrong. You need to be forgiven. Shame lives in the community and says, you're not welcome here. You need to be cleansed and accepted. These are two different things. A person can actually have guilt but not shame like a cold-blooded killer. Goes around killing people. He may be guilty before God, and he is. He may be guilty before the law of the land, but he doesn't feel any shame. He's walking around completely feeling free because he has trained his mind and his conscience to love these things. This is what we read about in Jeremiah when he says to Judah in 6.15 and in chapter 8 as well, were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not ashamed at all. They didn't even know how to blush. All these wicked sins were being committed and no one's even ashamed of it. In that sense, shame is good to remind us of our standing before God that we are unaccepted. We're not accepted before God. So a person can actually have guilt on them while not being ashamed. And then a person can also be ashamed without having guilt. That's Tamar. She didn't earn her shame. She didn't do anything to earn being raped. She experienced rejection and was an outcast because of something that was done to her. And yet, there's hope for the shamed, the ashamed. There's hope for the disgraced. God removes reproach. And maybe she had to go the rest of her life with that shame, that, that, that experience of shame. But if she was a child of God, that shame would have been removed in the next life. So there is a difference between them. You can have one without the other, but most often they're partners. Most often, like Adam and Eve, they were both guilty and ashamed, so they covered themselves. They hid from God. They knew their sin was wrong. They were guilty. They had guilt on them because they had sin. They, they needed forgiveness, but then they also were ashamed. So that's the clarification. Then observation number one. We are ashamed when we stand near the cross. We are ashamed when we stand near the cross. You should be ashamed of your sin. Did your parents ever say that to you? You should be ashamed of yourself. You should have known better. And that way, that's where we all were before we came to Christ. Our sin makes us not welcome before God. Adam and Eve realized this immediately. They hid themselves. They knew God was perfectly holy because they had walked with God. And in the Old Testament, a person who didn't come to God on his terms was described as an outcast. He was not part of the covenant community. He was rejected by God. And so when you sin against God, you should be ashamed of yourself, but you shouldn't stay there. Here's a key difference between God and us in our natural state. God moves towards the ashamed, the reproached, the outcasts. We tend to peel back from those who are reproach, reproachable, reproached. Consider Jesus with the woman who had a hemorrhage. Under the Mosaic law, she would have been unclean, and everyone she touched 
would have been unclean as well. The uncleanness would spread under the Mosaic law. But here she is, touching the garment of Jesus. Instead of Jesus being defiled by her, he makes the unclean clean. He cleanses her. Or what about the Samaritan woman in John 4? She was an outcast, rejected by her community. You're not welcome here. And yet Jesus doesn't despise her or forsake her. He moves towards her. He initiates a conversation with her. What about the prodigal son in Luke 15? Should have been rejected forever. But the father of the prodigal welcomes him with an embrace, a ring, a robe, and a party. Because he was willing to confess his sin. And so, if you are an outcast in God's realm or in the community of God's people, you can be welcomed. You can You can have God draw near to you. No sin is too great for God to cover you with His grace. No sin is too great for God to forgive. Jesus bore your shame in His body on the cross. He experienced the ultimate shame. Outcast. Not accepted by His own people. Crucified outside the city placed on a hill, condemned and naked for everyone to see, mocked and rejected. He's experienced shame. And he's done it so that you could be welcomed by him. And if we recognize our sin properly, we realize we were responsible for Jesus' death. It was my sin that nailed him there. We don't deserve to come to God. We, be, we deserve to be rejected by God. We deserve to be cast out from His presence. We deserve just condemnation. We deserve to be removed from the presence of God forever. And yet, when Jesus dies for our sin, the first thing that happens is the veil of the temple is torn in two, symbolizing the removal of this distance that there is between us and God. That Jesus has removed Our shame, our unwelcomeness. No longer am I an outsider. I can now draw near. Jesus has made the way. And so if you accept Christ's sacrifice as a payment for your sin, no matter what you have done, you're a part of God's family. No matter what has been done to you, He does not reject you. He moves towards you. He loves you and welcomes you into His presence. We are ashamed when we stand at the foot of the cross. Number two, we are ashamed when we take up our cross. Here's a different kind of shame. See, we are born as outcasts to God's presence. We are born as foreigners, aliens, strangers. But when we're born again, we're welcomed now into God's presence, God's family. But then we experience a different kind of shame, don't we? It's a shame of living in this kind of world that is no friend of grace, that hates our God. And therefore, we will be rejected. We will be outcasts by our world when we come into belonging with God. And so when you take up your cross 
and follow Jesus, you take up the shame of bearing his name. And you are rejected by a world that is opposed to him. Jesus promised that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If you are an outcast like Jesus, then they're going to persecute you like they persecuted him. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. Maybe one of the things that you've noticed as you've come to Christ is that you've actually lost friends. You've lost close relationships in your family that you once had because of your stand for Christ. And maybe you feel alone because you're taking a stand with Christ. Can I just encourage you this morning not to be ashamed because of being an outcast to the world? That's a good place to be. Listen to Jesus. Listen to what Jesus did for us here in Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. In other words, he was not accepted by his own people, the people whom he came to save. So he had to suffer outside the camp. Verse 13. So, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. We're starting to move towards an answer to shame here. There's a good kind of shame to experience. It's good to experience shame when we've sinned and we need to acknowledge that before God, when it awakens us to the ugliness of our sin unlike Judah, who couldn't even blush over their sin. It's good. It's also good to experience a shame that comes from being rejected by a world that hates God. So rather than commiserating over it and wishing things could be different, Jesus says, come with me outside the camp. Bear reproach with me. You'll be welcome out there. There is no belonging for Christians in a world that hates God. If you are rejected by the world, accept it. Embrace it. Don't let it weigh you down. You are sharing in the shame and reproach of Jesus. We're ashamed when we stand before the cross. We're ashamed when we take up our cross. Number three, we are ashamed when we forget the cross. The cross of Jesus reminds us that Jesus was an outcast. We can go with him outside the camp. If we're not willing to bear the reproach, then we will feel rejected by God and potentially by the community of believers who love God. So when we start to turn astray, we're going to feel a different kind of shame, a different kind of not belonging. Not because we as a church body don't love you, but because we do love you. And when the community of the world with all its evils becomes so enticing that we start to drift 
toward belonging and being accepted by that world that hates God. And so we go on and engage in sin. We forget the work that was done on our behalf. We forget the love and the call to holiness. And again, our sins makes us ashamed before God. But just like when we came to Christ, we don't have to stay there. God has made a way for us to be welcomed, to be accepted. God loves to welcome sinners. He loves to show grace to those who are weak and worthless. So whatever you've done prior to your salvation or after you have been saved, you can come to Him knowing that He will respond with mercy and grace even though your sins be many. His mercy is more. So much more. Number four, in the next life, we will never be ashamed. In the next life, we will never be ashamed. Shame will be removed. Romans 9 says, no one who puts their trust in God will ever be disappointed. There's never a time in which we're going to wish we'd have done it differently. When we reach the eternal state, no one can put us to shame. We will be in the presence of God. All those who would reject us and call us outsiders are outside themselves. All the dogs are outside the city, Revelation says. In the next life, we will be clean, connected, uncontaminated, welcomed, accepted, embraced. There's much to be ashamed about. You and I were responsible for the death of Jesus And yet the death that we caused was designed to bring us life. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that nailed him there. And yet, it was his dying breath. The very death that I brought about because of my sin is what brought me life, and I know that it is finished. We caused Jesus shame. And yet, He bore it willingly so that our shame could be removed, so that we would be welcomed into His presence. Let me finish with a quotation from John Calvin regarding grace for the outcast. He writes, Every good thing... we could think or desire, is to be found in this same Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, sin offering for our righteousness, marred that we may be made fair. He died for our life, so that by him fury is made gentle, wrath appeased, darkness turned into light, Fear reassured, despisal despised, debt canceled, labor lightened. Sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate, difficult easy. Disorder ordered, division united, ignominy ennobled, rebellion subjected, intimidation intimidated, ambush uncovered, assaults assailed, force forced back, combat combated, war warred against, vengeance avenged. Torment, tormented. Damnation, damned. The abyss sunk into the abyss. Hell, transfixed. Death, dead. 
mortality made immortal. In short, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness all misfortune. For all these things which were to be weapons of the devil in his battle against us and the sting of death to pierce us are turned for us into exercises which we can turn to our profit if we are able to boast with the apostles saying, O hell, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's because by the Spirit of Christ We live no longer, but Christ lives in us. Jesus experienced the worst kind of shame, an innocent shame. And yet, God brought great glory to himself through the shame of Jesus. He used the shame of Jesus that we caused for our very good and for his exaltation. And so, Whatever kind of shame you're experiencing right now, Jesus knows it. He understands. He bears your reproach. And we should go and bear reproach with him. He offers help and comfort and peace and joy and blessing and transformation to all who call on him in faith. And so, church, rise up in faith and trust this Savior who has been ashamed. Jesus was both deeply shamed and highly honored, and we must draw near to him because he alone can remove our shame. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the power of the cross. We were lost and condemned outside, outcasts in your community, and you did not leave us there. You did not leave us to grope and find our way on our own. You moved towards us. You sought us while we were your enemies. While we were ungodly, Christ died for us. And so instead of wrath, we experience blessing and joy. But then we gain a new kind of shame in being rejected by people who hate you. And so, Lord, we need faith. We need eyes to be able to see what you're doing and confidence that the troubles in life, even the consequences of our own sin, are used by you to strengthen and change us to be more like our Savior. And Lord, if we experience any kind of shame because of something that was done by someone else, help us to turn upward to you and then to move outward towards other people as to how we can help. And if we've experienced shame or are experiencing shame because of something that we did, help us to fall on you for mercy. Continually trust you to, in the next life, remove our shame completely. We will be fully welcomed, accepted, uncontaminated. Lord, transform us now and into eternity, we pray. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen.